0: This week on Writers Inc. So, when you go out in, in life, um, don't be staring down at your smartphone totally oblivious to what's going on because people ask me, Where you get your ideas? I say, I get my ideas from waking up every day and walking out the door. That's where I get my ideas. So writers do not discount that opportunity because literally millions of them staring at you every day. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session.
1: This is Writer's In. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm I'm hanging in there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be super optimistic.
1: Yes, yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just saw. I know we're not supposed to talk about this virus thing too much, but I just saw something on the news where they were saying what like next year is going to be like, um, because you know people are going to have this along with the flu, and then they're going to try and differentiate between the two when they're treating people, and it just seems like it's going to overcomplicate. Um, and they're also they're fast they're fast tracking a vaccine, um, which is both good and bad. And like the the horror author in me is like thinking of all the things things that could possibly go wrong right a fast-tracked vaccine you know probably made by the lowest bidder you know like yeah so we'll 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 see what happens but it's it's honestly it's really beginning to feel like you know this world's not going to reopen until everybody catches this thing in one form or another either catches it because they're outside or catches it because they get a vaccine you know and, and develop an immunity or whatever but like i it feels like we're just not gonna be able to move around freely without that. And like, I, I just went to get the, the battery in my iPhone replaced and, you know, I, I don't normally leave the house that much and just everything just seems so off, you know, like I don't even want to breathe when I'm outside, yeah. you know, let, let alone walking into, you know, I went to like a, a little mom and pop store to get it done. And, you know, like you just like, you don't want to touch anything. You don't want to be around anybody. And like, you know, that, that's some kind of instinctual self-preservation skill. I'm sure coming from you know somewhere in the deep parts of our brain. Um, I'm just wondering how long it's going to take for all that to unravel. Like, will we ever get back to a, you know, quote unquote normal again?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of of normal stuff that is gone, like handshakes. I, I can't see anyone like shaking hands again anytime in the near future.
2: No, but it's hard not to. I mean, I, and it might be an age thing because I think people a little bit younger than me, they don't quite do it as much, but you know, like I, I was raised to shake everybody's hand yeah. when I meet them. And like, I had a guy out here the other day from home Depot, giving me a quote on building a, a, like a storage shed, um, out on the property, you know, and he had gloves on, he had a mask on and this and that. And, you know, like immediately, like I just kind of almost reached out to shake his hand when he showed up, almost did it again when he left. And you know, it's, it's going to be hard to, to stop doing that. Um, you know, so many different things or just the idea of going to like a football game. You know, I love going to sporting yeah. events, but like, you know, you're sitting on top of each other at those things. And I don't know that I'll be ready to do that for for a while. Um and now that Tom Brady moved to Tampa with with Gronkowski. I don't know that I want to. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know if things will ever get back to the way that they were. You know, on the plus side, maybe we'll get a little bit more space on an airplane.
1: True. True. Yeah, I mean I have I have a number of different concert tickets f- with my son and my daughter. We had shows lined up we were going to go to in the summer and the fall and you know tours are tours are getting canceled one after another. I mean it could be 2021 before uh, bands can go out and play live in front of people again.
2: Yeah, oh and I just imagine going to like a general admission concert you know, like yeah. you're crammed you're trying to get to the front crammed against everybody, and like you know that that wasn't a problem a couple of years ago, but I don't think I want to do that now, yeah. <laughs> not, any, not anymore
1: so we'll, on on we'll happy see. on a happier note, uh how are your revisions going on on I know you were working with kristen on on some polishing stuff. How's that looking
2: yeah i I, I redid the ending again. Um, so I, I don't even know what number we're, we're on at this (laughs) point. Um, I've got the book loaded on my Kindle and I'm reading through it myself as just a a normal reader would, and just trying to catch the last couple, you know, I I tend to repeat words every, every once in a while. Um, you know, I, I, try not to do that, but you know, like the same word will appear like in two paragraphs next to each other. Yeah. Um, so I tend to find a lot of that kind of stuff when I do a pass at, at this, this point, um, for me, it helps to do it on my Kindle because that's the way I read other books. Um, You know, so it feels like I'm just kind of reading a book Um, and you can make notes on the Kindle so easily, um, you know, and go back and correct them. So I'm doing that right now. I'm trying to wrap that up for tomorrow. Uh, And I told Kristen, I would get the book tour over the weekend and then she's going to do the same thing. Uh, Plan is to take it out for submissions next week. Um, She likes to do things on a Friday. So depending on how quickly we move, you know, either next Friday or the Friday after. Um, she doesn't give editors a whole lot of time. Like she's going to give them a heads up that it's coming, you know, get them the book by Friday. Um, and Monday probably set up some type of auction for it and then we'll, we'll see where it goes. Mm. Um, I'm outlining the the Patterson book. I just sent um, my latest draft off to him and I haven't heard back yet. So I'm in that crazy waiting stage for the, the phone to ring. Um, I'm, I'm sure he'll have great feedback on it but it, you know it's my first attempt at a solid outline so I'm really curious to see what he thinks because his, his really are they're, they're very polished you know they, they flow like you can see that book in front of you when you re- read one of his outlines and mine feels you know a little clunky um, and I think I talked about this little last week but like you know he'll, he'll put one or two sentences that just kind of describes what that chapter is about and then you know next and just kind of keeps going through the whole book and I, I can't really do that because it's like a 30,000 foot view and I started you know I start to drill down I start throwing dialogue in there little snippets of what I want the scene to look like and before I know it my one or two sentences is two or three pages and um, you know I'll find a happy medium but um, I, I am seeing the benefits of that particular process because the whole book at this point is more or less laid out and I know I could sit down and, and write it and you know and probably work on a second project you know at a different part of the day so we'll, we'll see but that that's that's going well How, and how's your book going I, I know I've got pages I, I have to read and I owe you a yeah, I need a response back. There's
1: no hurry. Uh, Cause I, you know, I, I always have multiple projects going on at the same time. So if I hit a lull or if there's a delay on one, I just kind of shift my, my time to another. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm excited to see what you think. I, I got some great help on, on the dialogue. And uh, I think that's kind of set me up in, in a way that I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like, I think I mentioned this last time. I just feel this this burden of weight off my shoulders and I don't have to worry about like the setting and word choice and, and tone. Like I'm just going to have people talking and I don't know. I, I'm really excited about that. Cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, we have quite a guest this week, don't we? Yeah. We've, we've got one of the
2: the big ones. We've got David Baldacci on. Yeah. Um, I've been look, looking forward to this. I, I, I read, um, absolute power years back and that was his first book. Um, and, and I, it must have been a roller coaster ride for him because his first novel out of the gate you know it sold really well with the publishers got a movie deal clint eastwood starred in the film um you know i I can't imagine what that's like for your very first book (laughs) yeah Uh, but he he hasn't really slowed down and and i've i've honestly i've read probably about half of them because he's got quite a few out there and they're all they're all solid reads they're all four or five star reads and and you can tell he puts a lot of time and a lot of care into, into every single one and he's not phoning anything in for sure
1: Um, I'm really hoping he goes into
2: his process a little bit
1: and just kind of explains what he what he does to get the books there. Yeah. And and I certainly don't want to give anyone the impression that um, uh, that the only measure of success is is book sales, because that's not true. But David is is sort of in that he's sort of approaching that Patterson league like the guy is sold like millions and millions of books. And I, and I always find like anytime you have an opportunity to kind of pick the brain of someone who has reached to it, has ascended to that level in their profession, you're bound to get some, some great, uh, advice out of them.
2: Well, Jeffrey Deaver touched on it a little bit. You know, like he, his, his first book was was a very similar situation. He had Bone Collector. You know, the movie came out with Denzel Washington. Um, you know, which is a pretty strong opening. Um, but he, you know, he he said that he never really had a, a strong, huge, giant seller. Um, other than that, but he just, you know, he turns out book after book, after book, you know, one or two a year and just keeps going. And before you know it, you've got a big back catalog. And I honestly, I think that's what does it. Um, yeah. cause I, have thought about this quite a bit. And like when I first discovered Dean Koontz so I remember I, I walked into a target. Um, and I just, I was looking at the books that they had there and, you know, there were quite a few that were, were Dean Koontz books, you know, and to me, you know, the fact that he had 10 or 15 of them just sitting there at target, you know, that, that said something to me. Um, you know, and King was right there along with them. But there were only a handful that had that many. And for me, it was the same thing with like Lee Child. I think I was at the airport and I saw one of those cardboard stand-ups outside of the airport bookstore and had like 15 or 20 of his books there. You know, that's 15 or 20 years into his career. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, it's very rare to, to hit something so far out of the park where you're just a household name straight off the bat. It, yeah. It's really, I think it's it's about this the the long game. And um, some of these guys are the one, you know, they're the ones that are doing it. You, you see their names so many times, it just gets drilled into your head.
1: Yeah. Yep. So true. So we ready to hear what David's got to say? Yes, sir. Let's go. So you have uh, a brand new book out, uh, book six in the Memory Man series. Can you tell us a little bit about Walk the Wire? Yeah.
0: In this one, I take uh, Amos Decker, my memory man, and his partner, Alex James into North Dakota, to fracking the land. Uh, It's a small, obviously, Texas town in the northern part of North Dakota on the western side where all the fracking takes place. There's a dead body that's been discovered out in the range there. It's a woman. um, And the curious thing is she's already been autopsied. A post-mortem has already already been done on her. So uh, he's been called in to investigate that crime. And he's a little bit uh, confused because a local murder is not something the FBI really has anything to do with. Local police would take care of that. And... Later on in the book, he finds out why this particular victim was so special. And then it really gives him a chance to shine in a very different location. I mean, the fracking territories are kind of like the Wild Wild West, you know, the gold rush of 49 all over again. And there are no rules, uh, a lot of crime, very little law enforcement and uh, lots of things can happen.
1: Yes, for sure. Did you find writing book six in this series any more of a challenge than any of the previous books? They're all challenges, you know, no matter how
0: long you've been writing every book, new book is a challenge. You have to sort of, you know, get on your horse and learn how to ride again. Um, And they all present unique challenges. This was, you know, a different geographic area for me. So I sort of had to dive into that and learn a lot about North Dakota that I didn't know before, particularly about fracking in general. Um, But, you know, every every book is a challenge. And I think that's a good way to think about it. If you feel like you know what you're doing. I think you've lost your edge as a writer because you sort of, you know, try to do what you did before and drop in the formula and get a little complacent. And that's not a good thing. Fear is a great antidote to complacency.
1: Yes, I would totally agree. Do you have to, do you have to uh, write Amos in, in a different way or do you, do you want to so, sort of stay consistent with his character given what readers expect from you?
0: Uh, it's a great question. It's kind of, it's a it's a tricky fence straddle for me. I know that they want to see the Decker that they've seen in the other books because he is quirky and idiosyncratic and very you know unusual and i and I get that, and I want to give them that their they due for that. But the other part of bringing a character back is you see them change, you know, grow and evolve and become more than what they were in the previous book and the previous book and the previous book. So in this one, the device I used was that I had a family member that was in North Dakota that Decker didn't even know was there. And so that through that person, I was able to d- dive more into Decker's background and to show readers you know, sort of the man he used to be. Uh, so, that any changes that took place in this book with him would be even more, more stark for them because they realize where he started from and where he's gotten to. Um, but I take great pains in every book to show a little bit more of Decker, peel away the layers of the onion, and also allow him to change. Um, in the previous book, and before this one, I had had him sort of his memory was sputtering a little bit and he was consumed with the fear that he might be changing again, his brain might be altering itself again, which is obviously fearful for anyone. Um, and in this book, I just showed him, I think, growing a little bit more as a character, uh, taking things a little more personally, maybe getting back just a smidge into what he used to be before the brain trauma changed his whole life. Uh, and, you know, that's what I wanted to accomplish in this book. And each book going forward is always important to, yes, give, give Decker, the reader Decker that they'd like to see while he's investigating and all that, but also allow him to grow personally.
1: Interesting. Do you ever share your manuscripts with your wife and ask for her opinion before you move on to the next stage?
0: I I do. If I'm if I'm really uh, feeling uh, great about myself, I just give it to her and then she (laughs) tears me apart. Um, So it's a very humbling experience for me. And uh, but, you know, as a writer, you need to have a circle of people who will read the manuscript and not necessarily tell you what's really good about it, although it's always wonderful to hear. Uh, instinctively, you know, I think writers feel like, okay, yeah, this part I nailed, this part is really good. Other parts uh, I'm not really sure about. So I need sort of a circle of friends, including my wife, to tell me what's wrong with the novel. It's not working. You know, where it drags, where there's too much information, where the character seems off. Um, and that, that is the best help. So it's the, it's the constructive criticism that I really want when I have my you know circle of readers read the, the first draft. Um, and you know, they can tell me it's great and wonderful. I'm brilliant and all that too. I will not, I won't mind that at all, (laughs) but what I really need is for them to tell me what's wrong.
1: Yeah. And you're still married. So it must be working. 30 years and counting. So I must be doing something (laughs) right. You know, my
0: my wife told me a long time ago, she goes, don't worry, we'll never get divorced. I said, that's great, honey. You must really love me. She goes,
1: well, you know, I'm just too tired to train a new one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good attitude. I love it. Can you, can you talk for a little bit about uh, the impact or the influence your maternal grandmother had on you as a young kid?
0: Yeah, she was a school teacher in very wild, rural part of southwest Virginia, middle of coal mining country. And she had eight kids um, and lived with us for the last 10 years of her life as an invalid. Um, and I would, you know, as a little kid, I would visit her every day because she, you know, she was right there in her house. And when I grew old enough to go to school, I would still go and see her before I would leave to go to school. We would talk and she would tell me about her life. She was born, I think, you know, 1893 or something. So she had seen a lot of stuff going on that uh, obviously was very foreign to me and lived through a lot of the great events in our country's history. And uh, but, you know, she also talked a lot about her family history. She her maiden name was Atkins. Her married name was Rose. Um, And just the stories that I would hear from, you know, sitting at her knee uh, were just fascinating to me. And um, on my father's side, you know, it's a huge group of family battalions and battalions love to tell stories as well. Just, you know, don't stand too near. She'll hit you with one of their flailing (laughs) hands. Even I do that. I I move my hand. I guess it's in the blood. But um, so I sort of grew up with that oral history and oral storytelling mentality in my family. But those visits with my grandmother before I would go to school and when I got home from school were really important ones for me.
1: Yeah. And you seem to have both an affinity and a healthy respect for the role of history as a novelist and storyteller. And I I wonder if maybe that's where that seed was planted for you.
0: It could very well have been um, because uh, to this day, I remember, you know, a lot of the things that she talked to me about. And, uh, you know, a lot of it was certainly, you know, some over the head of a six, seven, eight year old, but as I grew older, I was, I guess, 11 when she passed away. Um, the more I could take it and the more I could understand and the more nuanced I could be about the things she was telling me. So it was, one, it was an important period for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can understand why. Uh, I, I was uh, reading an interview uh, with you and you had said that 11, 22, 63 is, is one of your favorite books. And uh, I, I wonder if maybe you could expand on that a little bit and tell us why you really enjoyed that Stephen King novel.
0: Well, <clears throat> first of all, it was you know probably one of the most calamitous events in American history—the assassination of JFK—and um, I was um, only you know three years old at the time, but. I love historical fiction and um, that's sort of where this book landed. I mean, it's a pine travel book and obviously fictional, but based a lot on actual historical events. Um, and even though it was a long book, my wife read it first and said, you got to read this. And she's not typically a Stephen King reader and his horror stuff and all that, but she, she loves historical fiction. So I, I read it as well. And you know, what I like about King's writing is obviously he's a wonderful wordsmith um, but he really concentrates on the small details that really fill out the big picture. If you look at all the scenes that he wrote about, he wrote about he, whoever the researcher he had, who, or maybe he did it himself, but all the, all the, the information about life in the, in the 60s, um, I just ate that all up. Uh, I mean, I was born in the 1960s, but you know, as a little kid, I didn't really understand a lot about the fashion and cars and politics and the history at that point in time. Uh, so he 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 takes the the time to uh, paint the small details vividly, and those small details add up to a big picture. Uh, it really turns into something very impressive. So each scene that he brings together, I think, is quite stunning.
1: Totally agree with that. Uh, I'm curious if you watched the uh, television series or not.
0: Oh, I did. Yes, yeah. Franco. Yeah,
1: um,
0: it, I thought it was terrific, and uh, the way they handled it was. Um, in fact, I've gone back and watched it again. In fact, the only reason I got Hulu was so I could watch Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. I've kept it since you know some good stuff on there, but back then Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three was the main driving force for me. So I thought it was a, a very faithful uh, adaptation uh, of the novel, and I think that it was a smart way to do it. I mean, it's an eight hundred page book. You know, a movie or you know one two hour television episode would not have cut it. So I think having a I think it was a ten-part um, mini series was the perfect way to adapt it.
1: Yes, I found it extremely entertaining and a nice compliment to the book. And I don't often say that, so I would I would agree with you on that. Uh, what yeah. What did you have to do, or or uh, what was your approach when you were writing uh, about World War II? Did you, Did you do field research, uh, book research, or sort of what was your process for that?
0: Yeah. So my father and, and his five brothers all served in World War II. Um, my dad was in the Navy, the other brothers were Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines, every service branch is sort of covered. So I again I'm I, I'm a student of history. I loved history in school. I minored in history, uh in college. And I just I read so many books. Uh, I go to a lot of battlefields. I just try to, you know, talk to people who have been there uh, and, and endured, you know, all of that sacrifice and hardship. So for me it was kind of right in my sweet spot and um I had read so much about it and listened to stories from my father and my uncles over the years uh that really uh proved very helpful for me um and i you know I, <clears throat> the great thing about research though is that as a as a writer it 's wonderful to know things, and the more you know about lots of different things, the more intriguing and original stories you can come up with because you can sort of dip into really disparate elements that no one ever thought about putting together. But you did just because you read about lots of different things. So it's nice to have a broad, you know, knowledge base, uh, which I try to do. But then once you've done all this research, you really have to be hard on yourself and you have to leave most of it on the cutting room floor uh, because you can't put it all in there. Um, It's going to interrupt the flow of the story. I like to call it flip books. You know, a writer who doesn't take the time to integrate his material and they've done a lot of research and they want to leave it all in and they find the spot in the book to stick it. And then the reader is reading along the story, enjoying it, and and they hit all the research and they flip, 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 flip past all those pages (laughs) of research that you did not want to cut out because you were too proud. Uh, to get back to the story. So it's really important for me to immerse myself in the research. Therefore, I can really distill it down to a sentence here, a paragraph there, a line of dialogue here, which really you know, the few words that I use have more impact than I've stuffed 100 pages into it.
1: Yeah, and that was a a phenomenal chapter in your masterclass and and sort of a gut punch for those of us who love the research when you said leave most of it out, uh, which we're (laughs) going to get to in a moment. But uh, on this thread of history, I know you're a a lifelong Virginian and Colonial Williamsburg is one of my favorite places in the whole world. I've I've been there a dozen times. Have you considered placing a story either in, in that context or that time period?
0: You know, I was, at this point in my career, I never said never. I never thought be, I'd write a book about, you know, 1949 and the aftermath of World War II with a, you know, a shameless named Aloysius Archer. So, I, again, it's certainly possible. It's where would my interests sort of take me. Um, Williamsburg, you know, is a place that I know intimately and have been there dozens and dozens of times. And... Um, and a lot of people don't realize that it never would have existed as it is now, except for the uh, generosity and philanthropy of the Rockefeller family. Right. because he, you know, he took it over and um, remade it, I and mean, it was really nothing left there. Um, but it's a significant point of American history, and I've written about the area in contemporary novels, where I've taken people down uh, to different places in the in the Williamsburg and Virginia Beach, and Newport News area, um, mm-hmm. and it's just. Uh, i i find it fascinating and virginia is a very historical state I, I like to joke you know sort of partly joking that you can't throw a rock in any direction in virginia without hitting an historical monument <laughs> because <laughs> it's just there certainly growing up in richmond it's everywhere so particularly the civil war um uh, so i i do like writing about it because i like the historical perspective it gives
1: uh, so do I, and and I think a lot of times you you look at cities like Boston or Philadelphia or even New York for that matter, and they get a lot of attention from historians. But e- even in you know the southern part of Virginia, you have Williamsburg, Yorktown, and uh, and Jamestown that are all you know within 20 miles of each other, and it, it's just a phenomenal opportunity. And especially if you love history and you love telling stories, w- what a great resource!
0: It absolutely is. You know, yeah. it absolutely is. And it just has played a, you know, an important part in her. And the reason it's so close together, too, uh, back then, the settlers and all that, it wasn't like they could jump on a superhighway and <laughs> drive somewhere or jump on a plane. So, you know, the settlements were all very close to each other for obviously very practical reasons.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to ask you a couple of questions about your masterclass, which is, uh, I've been through it twice. It is absolutely phenomenal. And uh, in Chapter Two, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, in Chapter Two, you introduce a term called uh, the writer's Prism. I'm wondering if you could explain how that works.
0: Yeah, so everything
1: for me, every you know observation I make,
0: it's not just done um, sort of languidly or without purpose. It's done through this perspective of what I you know I call a writer's prism. And that is whatever you're seeing, who you're seeing, what you're saying, what you're' hearing. What's the possibility for it ending up in a book? And what might it inspire you to write about? Um, so when I go out and I meet people, talk to people, observe people, watch things, you know, watch the world go by, I'm looking at it with the potential of, is there something there that might inspire me? Is there something there that could be intriguing for me? You know, I'll give you an example, but I was um, still, I had finished my first novel, it its sold, but I was still practicing work. You know, I was practicing as a lawyer. And this is back in 1996. And I was actually, no, this is back in 1993. And uh, I joined this big law firm. And back then, you know, the computer systems were not as as sophisticated, obviously, as they are today. And uh, back then, law firms didn't want to be connected to anything called the internet because they feared for confidentiality and people, <laughs> you know, stealing stuff. So everything was networked within the office, right? So I remember getting an email. From a, a secretary, from a lawyer, and it popped up on my computer. And I looked at it, you know, just briefly, and I turned to something else that I was doing. It, and when I went back to get it, it was gone. So I called her and I, and I said, Did you send me an email? And back then, I guess the system allowed me. She goes, Yeah, but there was a mistake in it. I pulled it back. And that ended up being sort of one of a pivotal clue in a book I wrote called Total Control. Um, And another example would be when I was um, I was being interviewed by NPR and um, we was doing it was a live interview and we were actually walking through um, close to the White House at Lafayette Park Um, and he was interviewing me as we were walking along and he talked to me about, you know, this writer's prism, you know, and so can you give us an example right now live on national radio? <laughs> and <laughs> I said, okay, I can. So I looked over the White House and I saw they had the landscaping crew were there. They were replacing a tree in front of the White House. And there were obviously all the tourists by the fence. Everybody's taking pictures and all that. And I said, well, um, so two things are happening here, at least as far as I'm concerned. The guy inside of the landscape crew is a plant. He's worked there for 10 years. The sole reason is to orchestrate something that's going to be happening really soon and one of the people the tourists there are taking pictures is not actually taking a picture she's actually using the camera to signal the person inside who's working on the tree some significant information will help further the plot i have that's going to take place in this area very soon and you know once i did that the radio uh interviewer was like that's you know it's it's pretty good but Probably three books later, I actually used that uh, <laughs> idea in a novel, you know, the target. And um, it, it, so when you go out in, in life, um, don't be staring down at your smartphone, totally oblivious to what's going on. Because people ask me, where are you going to get your ideas? and I say, I get my ideas from waking every day and walking out the door. That's where I get my ideas. So writers do not discount that opportunity because there are literally millions of them staring at you every day.
1: It sounds as though that if you focus on that power of observation, as you've described it, uh, that that helps you walk that line between plausibility and probability, which is another concept you raised in the master class. Can you explain the difference between those two?
3: Yes. <clears throat> as a novelist, you know, I am bound by plausibility, not that it has happened, but the potential is there for it, that it could happen um so if it's plausible i feel like i can write about it and as world events change from time to time i I feel like today pretty much a lot more is plausible today than maybe people thought was plausible maybe three or four years ago (laughs) so kind of like you know the skies have opened and anything is possible these days so you can write about it now you're going to get people who will you know comment and write back and say oh you know this is crazy that i could never happen and you know then it actually does happen for real and you're tempted to write them back but you know you don't <laughs> I don't do that. But so that's that's the plausibility, you know, that's plausible design. Now the probability, you know, is it has something like is it happened for or the events, you know, right for it that it could happen. Um and they're they're very close, you know, in nature probability and plausibility, but I like to look at the plausibility line. You know, if if it could happen based on, and my, it's my job to build up the facts that will convince readers while they're reading to say, you know, you don't want them to never say this is crazy, it's ridiculous. You want them to say oh, you know, wait, the way he's built this story, I could see that actually happen. Um, and one way to do that is to sort of ground it in a, in a sort of an historical perspective. Um, one thing that I, I really love is, you know, the federal government, and particularly the military, over you know, the 250 plus years we've been a country, They've done some pretty crazy things, you know, and when you have that much money and uh, all these experts, you know, and people working really hard on certain projects, things, you know, can go awry. So in, in a book I wrote years ago called Zero Day, I had this small town in West Virginia and some really weird things were happening, which prompted the character John Puller from Army CID to go and investigate because a military man and his family had been murdered. And there was a huge concrete dome, been covered over and reclaimed by the woods and the forest in West Virginia. Nobody knew what was under there. It used to be some type of defense facility, but now it was totally closed off and nobody could get in and everybody's just assumed, well, it's just there, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but what was actually under that dome was quite, you know, frightening. And I and I, when I was thinking about that, I, I, I looked at a lot of, you know, actual things that have happened and what, you know, the government has done and things they have buried and things they have put away and things they have hidden and all over the place, and after reading some of those things, I'm like, you know, this is totally plausible and actually probable that there might be actually one of these concrete domes somewhere in the country that has under it what I wrote about <laughs> in a bit. Um, so I, I think again, reading a lot uh, of actual facts about things allows you your creative mind to really spin faster, uh, just because you take it to the next level, you push the envelope a little bit. Uh, but you're basing it on the things that actually have happened or may very well have happened once, you know, if the truth ever comes out. And that way, your possibility angle, I think, is well taken care of.
1: Yeah. And and when you do sit down to write, especially these days, do you have a, a particular routine or location or process for your daily writing?
3: I, you know, I don't have a particular routine uh, or particular time of day. I write in the morning, afternoon, late at night. Um, really when it strikes me, I, you know, I don't have a particular word count or page count, but I do have things I want to accomplish during the course of a particular day. You know, I, I was writing, I got up early this morning to have some things I wanted to write and I wanted to get them down wanna refresh in my mind. And what I tend to do is I will, um, write a big chunk, uh, what I call the framework. It's almost like, you know, when you're building a house, frames go, the frame goes up first. You lay the foundation, the concrete foundation, the frames go up. So you just have the studs. Um, And I consider that sort of the first pass. And then the second pass, I like to print pages out and take my pen. And I I think better in cursive. So I like to mark the pages up in cursive. And what I'm adding there then is like the the walls and the insulation, and I'm framing the roof. Um, And adding a nuance and sophistication and levels of detail that was not apparent while I was framing it. Uh, then as I move on, um, I'm building the house out even more, you know, so the drywall is put in, uh, the floors are laid, uh, the windows are put in, the doors are put in, and it's a continual process of refining, adding to, you know, the framework that's there, and the framework is just a bare of studs. Uh, you need to get that out, because a story to have some framework, but all of the stuff that actually people will enjoy reading beyond that, that comes in later drafts, uh, because that's when... You're into the story. The creativity really flows. You know your characters. You know the locations. You know what you want to accomplish. So then it's like, okay, the, the framing is done. I don't have to concentrate any bit of my energy, creative energy on that anymore. Everything is totally focused on bringing the final points of the story together, the ones that people really enjoy reading. The nice line that makes people smile or cringe or laugh um, or a characterization that really allows them to gnaw into that particular character to know exactly who they are there's all types of things come in different stages. And so I guess if I have a process, that may be it.
1: Well, it's a, it's a great physical analogy and it makes it very clear. So th- thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. a, as we uh, kind of pull the conversation to a close, uh, I, I sort of have a, a big open-ended question for you and I'm, uh, I'm just curious as to how you might answer it. Uh, and that is um, where do you think the publishing industry is headed in the next say five to 10 years? <clears throat>
3: it's it's a challenging time now for everybody who's trying to, you know, make a living either, you know, by their labor or, you know, by their creativity or whatever. Um, I like to say that my first twenty years in publishing, the publishers didn't change at all. In my in the last five years they have changed three thousand percent. They've had to. They've probably been pushed into, you know, the real world. Um ebooks were a big part of it, audio audio downloadables were a big part of it. They have to go where the consumers are now and the consumers are on electronic devices for the most part, although, you know, print and paper is still important. I just think that, you know, as we we go forward, um, I think that writers are going to have to adapt to a new environment where, uh, they're going to have to, they and their publishers are going to have to be really smart about, uh, marketing their works, putting them in places where they can succeed, taking a, a firmer, stronger hand in their own promotion. Instead of, you know, you, you write the book and then you go out on a prescribed tour that the publisher wants you to do. And then you go back and you don't do anything else. I have, you know, for the, all the years that I've been publishing, I take the marketing very seriously. So I, I pretty much market and, you know, do things year round. Uh, the publishing tour that I do is a very small part of what I actually do throughout the year to promote my books, and my works, and also other writers. Because uh, I think that is also part of the job of a writer, is not just to sit down and write the books, it's also to promote the books and promote publishing and reading in general. Uh, and that way, the pie grows bigger for everyone. Uh, so I think it's really important that I think publishers are going to have to, you know, really, it's not like taking a page ad, you know, one page ad, not in New York Times, and say, my work is done. Um, you have to find out where the audiences are. I know my British publisher, Pam McMillan, those focus groups all the time with different age groups to get their feedback on to my books, what drives them to those books, how they view my brand, lots of interesting questions, and then sort of tool and fashion the marketing to uh, to that audience. And they do a lot more digital stuff, a lot less in the print, a lot less on television, a lot more just over the, over the internet spectrum. But they go into targeted audiences, where places they know that those audiences who buy my books and read my books go. Um, and also ways to, you know, have the, you know, the word spread around and have people take interest in my career, not just in each book individually. So I think publishers are going to have to rethink, you know, how they sell books. I think it's going to come down to it's not just a matter of selling each book as it comes out. It's a matter of selling, you know, writers throughout the course of their career. So it doesn't end, you know, three weeks after the book comes out and you move on to the next writer. It has to be a nonstop process of every day going in and saying, how can we approach and reach an audience today that we haven't been able to reach thus far? Uh, And there are lots of creative ways to do it. But one big way to do it is to actually get information. You know, with the coronavirus going on and say, look, how can we go back to work? We have to have information. We have to have testing and targeting and monitoring and surveillance and tracing. Well, in the publishing industry, you have to have all those things too. You can't make decisions if you don't have the information based on decisions aren't on anything. So if you don't know where the readers are, you don't know where they like to congregate, you don't like know how they like to read, how they like to consume the product you're trying to sell. How in the hell can you make intelligent decisions about, you know, trying to sell them what you want to sell them? So I think it's gotta be, you know, a year round effort and a lot more focused on getting information the consumer base and not just making guesses about where it might be.
1: So there is David Baldacci. Great interview, I thought.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm I'm hearing certain patterns, and yeah, you know me, like I always tend to pick out what what I think is you know useful from a career standpoint right. for for myself, and like I I tend to hear a lot of the same things. Like he, his wife is a you know an honest reader for him. Um, all these guys that I, that I talk to, the ones that have been doing this for a long time or that sell really well or have a big catalog, they've got that person in, the, in their court, you know, that one person that is willing to pick up the book and give them honest feedback on it. Not tell them what's good, but tell them what needs to be fixed. Um, and he mentioned that he's got a circle of friends that, that he, he does that with, you know, basically his beta readers. Um, I, I think that's very important. Every, every writer that I know, a successful writer seems to have those things out there, you know, long before their agent or their editor sees a book, um, it goes through a pretty rigorous process. Um, and, and he's definitely doing that as well.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I love uh, you know, talking about picking out themes. Something else that he said that I've heard now a number of times is to pay attention. You know, he talked about using the writer's prism, but but this idea of when you're out in the world pay attention to what's happening be observant uh take mental notes you know kind of get your face out of your phone and look at the world around you and that's a great source of ideas
2: yeah and they really are everywhere like i'm I'm looking out my window right now and i'm watching my neighbor um he's 70 some years old and he's restacking a, a rock retaining wall (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, you know, like, first of all, the fact that he's out there doing this, you know, cause he, these are not small rocks. These are rocks that are like a, a foot or so, you know, probably hundred pounds, 150 pounds or something each. And he's out there moving these things around. Um. But you know, like just the visual of that—that's something that I'm, I'm throwing back in my, you know, in, in my brain, you know, in, in a filing cabinet somewhere, and I'll probably use that at some point. Yeah. Um. You know, or little little things. You know, you see a, a you know, I, I got the idea for a Fourth Monkey because I was standing in line at the grocery store, um, and there was a father and a son behind me, and the, the kid was maybe eight or nine years old, um, and in front of us there was a, a woman that was pretty large. And she was in one of those little, you know, motorized carts. Um, and the kid said something about her and I didn't hear what he said, but the father leaned down and, and he just goes, speak no evil, son. And then he stands back up again. And I'm like in front of him going, you know, what the hell was that? You're like, Who actually says that? That's so and biblical. It, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm thinking, well, you know, if that happens here in line at the grocery store, what's going on at their house? Um, you know, and, and that's essentially where the backstory for my, for 4MK came from, you know, something that minor. You know, if I would have been reading a magazine or something, I might have missed it altogether. Um, you know, just little little things pop up here or there. But that's what gives your story authenticity. It makes it real.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And clearly the guy loves history. And it was it was kind of fun to talk to him uh, about eleven twenty two sixty three 63 as if he were just another fan. Uh, you know, like I, he kind of had that same sort of <laughs> a feeling with Stephen King that we all do
2: yeah king kings off in his own world he, he really is you know it's, there there's him and then there's everybody else um you know i i, I just finished reading if uh, if it bleeds his latest one um and and it's phenomenal and like I, I honestly for me it, my personal favorites are his short stories and his novellas i think he just it, it, they're just a notch above his books and and that's not saying that his, there's any problem with his books his books are fantastic but there's something about his short stories where he just really shines um and and this is one of them and, and it's just as good as you know like some of the, the early stuff that, that he put out. You know, he's just it it's an amazing, amazing person. And I'm sure David, you know, probably reads it the same way that the you know the rest of us do. We read it as a fan and we read it as a um, as a student.
1: Yeah. You know, what is this guy doing?
2: What what can we pick out of here to and, and put in our own work? You know, what can we learn from it?
1: Yep. And it's it's funny because I've said to people, you know, Pet Cemetery and Salem's Lot are, are probably my two favorite King novels. But eleven twenty two sixty three is right up there and it's it's not horror you know and it it just goes to show how versatile and talented king is
2: yeah i mean the research behind it is is huge obviously and it's one of those books where you know if i run into somebody who's never read king before um it's one of the ones that i'll recommend because i I know it's not horror it's not not going to scare them but it's going to it's going to rope them in for sure yeah um and you know the kennedy assassination in general is just one of those fascinating times in history it's it's one of those unsolved mysteries that'll probably remain unsolved Um, You know, the the, most of the players at this point are dead. The the information's buried. Nobody's really going to know what happened on that day. Um, And and he found a a cool, fresh take on it.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it's just so immersive, such great storytelling. and, And, you know, you're just I wasn't alive then, but like I felt like I was when I was reading that book.
2: Yeah, you know one of the other things that David brought up, you know, he's thirty years or so into his career at this point, and he's still heavily involved on the marketing side, which which I I like to hear. Yeah, um, I th- I think a lot of people don't realize just how much of that you have to do, and 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 I've seen it, you know, like he's, you know, I've seen him, you know, do his, his talks in person and the kind of stuff that he he does, um, he, he's definitely you know an overachiever when it comes to that, and, and you need to do that these days to, to stand out.
1: Yeah, and and uh, we we haven't even mentioned this yet, but uh, highly recommend his masterclass. Again, uh, a great reason to get the subscription so that you can get all of those great classes. But, man, Baldacci's uh, Masterclass in, in Masterclass is fantastic.
2: Yeah, I mean, MasterClass in general is, is one of my favorite websites. I and mean, where else can you sit down with with somebody like this and and basically get a one on one you know class? Yeah, um, it's every writer should take advantage of it. And and they at this point they've got so many of these classes with different uh, genre writers or different people. You can find one that's going to fit your your personal writing style. If, if David's not it, if you're not looking to write these types of thrillers, um, you know there's somebody else out there that can that can teach you too. Yeah, um, I, I, I I'm I'm going to probably end up picking up MasterClass again just to go. Back Back through because it's been a couple of years since I've done it. Um, and there, there is a
1: fresh crop of them. And I, and I love to hear
2: the, the different takes from different authors. Yeah. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully uh, listeners got a lot of great takeaways from David's interview. So uh, who do we get on the docket for next week? We've got Scott Nicholson, which I think you brought in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Scott's a guy I've known for a long time. He was one of the, one of the first uh, traditional Writers who went indie back in the early twenty tens and I remember reading Red church, uh, which is a fantastic horror novel and uh and ended up reaching out to him and and over the years we've done a few cross promotions together and helped each other out and he's just a he's a funny guy like he's a uh he's kind of self described as like old cynical stodgy uh <laughs> pessimistic, but yet he's a survivor like he um, like you get know, off my lawn kind of guy. Yeah, he is a get off my lawn <laughs> kind of guy. But like he knows the industry, and like I said, he he was in the in the circles with like um, Joe Conrath and Blake Crouch uh, and and those guys. And so he had a nice back catalog of books. And when Kindle came along, he was able to take advantage of that, and and has done well since. So uh, he's a really fun guy, musician, uh, quirky, just um, uh, really interesting, a lot to offer. So I think it's going to be a fun interview.
2: All right. Well, looking forward to it.
1: Cool. So to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc.
0: Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.